Welcome to a special IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture given by the 2019 Royal Australian Chemical Institute Sargisson Award winner, Associate Professor Elizabeth New from the University of Sydney. Elizabeth's lecture examines her group's work on the inorganic chemistry of cells, including their research into developing molecular imaging tools to better understand the interactions between metals and cells. Elizabeth is an impressive young scientist who holds a Westpac Research Fellowship with a main focus on the development of small molecule chemical sensors for the study of oxidative stress and metal ions in biology. Her award, the Alan Sargison Lectureship, is a prestigious early career award that acknowledges significant and innovative individual contributions to the field of inorganic chemistry by researchers within 10 years of the award of their PhD. This distinguished visitor lecture was given on Thursday the 30th of May 2019 at QUT's Gardens Point campus as part of Elizabeth's lectureship tour. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much, John, for hosting me. Um, this award has been a really great chance for me to visit universities that I haven't had a chance to speak at before, and, and this was certainly top of my list, so it's um, great to have a chance to, um, to spend time with people during the day um, and to tell you a little bit about what we've been doing in our group. Um, but I will start by adding my own um, thanks to the Inorganic Division for the Alan Sargison um, Award, and really... I never met Alan Sargison, I heard a lot about him, but I think I benefited enormously from his reputation and from the, the um, reputation that he established for Australian inorganic chemistry. He really opened doors for me when I was going overseas. I think inorganic chemists in Australia had a good reputation because of Alan Sargison and everything that he'd done and the great scientist that he was. Uh, so one thing that he um, really worked on was the field of bioinorganic chemistry. So he was recruited to ANU to set up the new, along with Dwyer, to set up the new bioinorganic chemistry division in the 1960s, which was about 20 years before anyone else in the world was doing bioinorganic chemistry. Um, and that is an area that I'm really passionate about, and so I've benefited from the fact that Australia has always been at the forefront of this um, field. Um, and to my mind, bioinorganic chemistry is really about studying the interactions of metals with cells. Uh, so there's a whole area which involves understanding essential metal ions and their role in proteins, um, as well as in cellular regulation. Um, and then more recently, there's been a lot of interest in understanding therapeutic metal complexes, and certainly Sargison's cobalt complexes fit into that. How do therapeutic metal complexes or just other exogenous metal complexes that we might encounter through food or through the environment, how do they interact with cells? How are they metabolized and how do they affect cellular processes? And because most of these metals are redox active metals, it's also really important to understand cellular redox state. Um, and so we're very interested in understanding, the, in probing, directly probing, these three various aspects of the chemistry of the cell so that we can build up a picture, a better picture of, of bioinorganic chemistry in both health and disease. Of course, we know, though, that these things don't happen in isolation. So, for example, um, therapeutic metal complexes can hijack normal uptake pathways for essential metal ions. All of these redox active metals can perturb cellular redox state, and cellular redox state, in turn, can affect the way that metals are handled. And so we also need to be starting to look at the interactions between all of these systems in order to understand the complexities of what's going on in a cell. 
So these are the sort of chemical questions that we're really interested in studying. Um, and most of the work in our group is about developing molecular imaging tools to allow us to understand this chemistry. Uh, so we work on three main types of chemical tools. Um, I'm not going to talk about these two, but we have worked on developing responsive MRI contrast agents, um, particularly those based on cobalt that can tell us about the redox state of metals within the cell. Um, and more recently, we've started working on fluorescent sensing arrays, uh, which are really useful for telling us information about um, complex fluids. They don't give us spatial information, but they can be used, for example, for measuring um, metal concentrations in serum or in other body fluids or in the environment. Um, but I'm just going to focus today on what we've done in, sensing, in developing fluorescent sensors. Uh, I'll spend most of the time talking about our work in sensing redox state, um, and then I'll talk briefly about some strategies that we've developed in uh, sensing metals in um, cells. But I thought first I'd start by just telling you the chemical considerations, the things that we think about when we develop fluorescent sensors. So our fluorescent sensors, in theory, are very simply um, constructed. They contain a fluorophore tethered to a sensing group. Now, everything I'm going to talk about today um, involves small molecule organic fluorophores, uh, but equally, we could use metal complexes here. We could even use quantum dots if we could build in some nice um, sensing properties. And the idea is that the analyte of interest will interact with the sensing group and we get a change in fluorescence of the fluorophore. Uh, so when we try to construct these systems, we have really four criteria that we try to achieve. Um, we don't always achieve them all. Sometimes that's okay. Um, but I thought I'd go through them all first. Uh, so our first criterion, the thing that we're very interested in, is selectively sensing one analyte over all others. We know that the cell contains many chemicals, many of which look similar to each other. And if we want to really understand the bioinorganic chemistry of the cell, we need to be able to selectively sense one species over all others. So that means we need to be really careful in build, designing our sensing group so that we get a very selective interaction with the analyte. Uh, secondly, an interest in our group, which is quite different from, from many others in this field, is um, in the development of reversible sensors. So we would like to be able to watch cells over time and understand how chemical species build up but then also can decrease over time and how chemical environments can move from one part of the cell to another. And so in order to do this, we need to not just see the turn on of our sensor, we also need to see it turn off again. Uh, so we need to construct a system where we have an equilibrium, where we not only can see the forward reaction, but also the reverse reaction. That does restrict us somewhat. It means that if we want a reversible sensor, we need to build a system where we're having a coordination-based recognition of event rather than some irreversible reaction as our recognition event. Um, our third interest is in ratiometric sensing. So sensors like this, which go from off to on, have a spectral change that looks like this. Um, and we call these turn-on or intensity-based sensors. And the challenge with sensors like this is that we can't tell the difference here whether this is uh, a lack of probe or a lack of analyte. The probe could be present but just turned off. So if we look at this part of the cell here, we don't know whether that part of the cell has just not accumulated any of the probe or whether there's just no analyte there. Um, and that's particularly important when we start to do these time-based um, studies where maybe probe could just be leaching out of the cell over time. So a solution to this is to develop a ratiometric probe where we have more than one peak which respond differently to our analyte. 
And so now we can take a ratio of these two peaks, and that ratio has nothing to do with the concentration of the probe. The other effect is that we will get a change in colour rather than a change in intensity. So we won't be going from off to on or from slightly bright to slightly more bright. Instead, we will see a change in colour and we can be much more confident in interpreting changes in colour than we can in interpreting changes in intensity. Uh, and our final interest is in understanding not just what's going on in the whole cell, but probing a specific part of the cell. There's lots of really interesting chemistry that goes on within organelles of the cell, um, and we don't want to miss that interesting chemistry just by having a global sensor that tells us about the whole cell. Uh, so in order to do this, we can use a targeting group, which acts as a tag to send the probe to the place of interest within the cell. So as I said, um, we try to achieve all of these criteria, and a lot of the, the chemistry that goes on in our group is in trying to develop robust ways to achieve each of these aims. Um, you'll see that sometimes we, normally we don't achieve all four of these um, criteria, and sometimes that's okay, um, but it is really something that we continue to work towards. Uh, so first I'm going to tell you about the work we've been doing in sensing cellular redox state. Um, and this question really, um, there are two sides to this question. We know that the cell is a balance of oxidants and reductants and, and defined by some reduction potential or the reduction potential of many molecules in the cell. Um, and we can either have a perturbation where we have too many oxidants, generally reactive oxygen species, and we call that oxidative stress. Um, and that's of particular interest at the moment because oxidative stress is associated with all diseases of ageing, diseases like obesity and neurodegenerative disease. If we go the other way and we have too few oxidants or too many reductants, uh, then we have a situation which we term hypoxia. Um, this generally occurs in, uh, when we have, don't have enough oxygenated blood to tissue, so it can occur in stroke and in heart attack, can also occur in tumours, where tumours grow too far away from the blood vessels so they don't access enough oxygen. Um, so even though these are two very different conditions, really how we design a probe for these just depends on how we tune our, uh, reduc the reduction potential of our probe. Uh, so I'm going to start by telling you about our sensors for hypoxia. So in this case, we actually were not aiming for a reversible sensor, we instead took inspiration from work that's already been done in developing hypoxia-responsive drugs, um, based on the fact that an ar uh, aromatic nitro group will undergo a one-electron reduction, which is reversible in the presence of oxygen, but irreversible in the absence of oxygen. So in the absence of oxygen, this one-electron reduction continues all the way down to the aniline group. Um, and so, whereas in, in normoxia, where we have enough oxygen, we go back to the parent nitro form. Um, this is um, mediated by an enzyme called nitroreductase, which is present in all cells of the body. Um, and so this property has been used to develop prodrugs, where uh, a drug will be tethered to this nitroaromatic group and held strongly so that it is not released and the drug therefore has no effect. And only in hypoxic tissue do we get um, reduction to the aniline form and then there is some triggered release which will release active drug and so we only get activity in hypoxia. Um, but we didn't want to develop drugs, we wanted to sense hypoxia, um, but we thought we could use this same strategy. 
Um, and we've had a long interest in using um, naphthalamide-based probes. They have really nice fluorescent properties and they're quite synthetically amenable to modification. Um, and one of the properties of a naphthalamide is that in order to have fluorescence, we have to have a lone electron pair here, um, which can undergo intramolecular charge transfer, which is responsible for the fluorescence that we see. Um, so our idea was that in the nitro version, we won't have fluorescence, we don't have that lone electron pair, um, but in hypoxia, we'll have reduction to the amine form and restoration of fluorescence. Unfortunately, though, when we put it into cells, we saw that both normoxic and hypoxic cells were fluorescent. So we were get clearly getting reduction to the aniline form far too quickly, um, and so we couldn't have selectivity between normoxic cells and hypoxic cells. Incidentally, also, this was highly toxic, and so the cells didn't survive very well. Uh, but fortunately, we'd, we'd had a project um, going... I had a project going with Kate Jolliffe, um, who's also at Sydney, and a really talented honours student at the time, who was really interested in, in understanding the structure of naphthalamides and really taking them from this really limited window of green fluorescence and seeing whether she could make probes of a whole a, a far broader range of fl uh, fluorescent output. And so in order to do this, she just developed a whole lot of dye-substituted naphthalamides where she substituted various groups at these three positions and was able to greatly expand the fluorescence um, emission of these naphthalamides. Um, and so, for example, we've got this sulfonate version, which is quite green emitting, um, this diamine substituted version, which is yellow emitting, um, and if we change the amine to the other side, it becomes red emitting. And she also saw that we could therefore perturb the um, subcellular localization by making these small modifications. Um, so we've been quite fortunate now because we, we've got this way of making um, naphthalamides different colours and we've now got this huge library of naphthalamides with different um, groups substituted which can have really interesting different sensing properties. Um, of course, the one thing that we were interested here was whether the addition of the nitro group at any of these three positions would allow us to actually sense hypoxia within cells. And so, for example, if we look two systems compared to just the parent naphthalamide. We've got this one here which is um, blue shifted and this one here which is red shifted. And we thought that because we were getting these really clear spectral shifts this might mean that we could make a ratiometric probe. If we reduce these, this nitro to the, analine, uh, to the amine version we maybe will see a change in colour. So just for comparison this was the first compound I showed you Going from the nitro to the amine, we saw just an increase in fluorescence at one wavelength. Uh, but here are two of the analogues that we looked at. Um, and this one was particularly exciting because now we're, we always have this group here which gives us fluorescence. Um, and then we're having reduction at this group here. And what we find is that we're growing in a second fluorescence peak. So we, we built a ratiometric probe, it turns out. This peak doesn't change with the reduction this peak increases upon reduction. So we were really excited about this molecule um, and the potential for using it as a hypoxia-responsive probe. At the same time, we'd also made this one, which is again ratiometric. We've got this peak here that doesn't change much and this peak that increases a lot upon reduction. Um, we thought it was not going to be so promising. So the first thing we wanted to do was to see whether we could actually see this ratiometric change within cells. Um, and so spectral 
imaging is a really powerful microscopy technique because it allow us, allows us to actually take the spectrum from within the cells. And by spectral imaging, we can indeed see these two peaks that we expect. Um, now, um, remembering that our naphthalamide is going from blue to green in hypoxia, we can monitor the green to blue ratio. And we found that in, hypoxia, in hypoxic systems, we were getting an increase in the, blue to green, uh, the green to blue ratio over time. So we're actually seeing a turn on of our probe under hypoxia. Now that's nice because it means that the probe wasn't straight away turning on in, in normoxia. We've clearly tuned the reduction potential away from um, where it was in that original molecule so that it's being reduced more slowly. Uh, so the, the question that we were really interested in probing then was whether we could image hypoxia resistance in cells. Um, and working with our collaborator, Wojtek Chernovsky, in, in pharmacy at the University of Sydney, um, we were interested in looking at two cell lines which are derived from, from the placenta. Uh, so this cell line here is derived from the side of the placenta that faces the mother. Um, and so those cells there undergo a huge amount of chemical onslaught because the idea is that those cells should be protecting the baby from any chemicals that may be coming their way. And one of the things that they may, may want to protect the baby from is hypoxia. So those cells have developed hypoxia resistance. They won't respond to hypoxia. These other cells come from the other side of the placenta, the side that faces the baby. Um, and because they're protected by the outside cells, they actually don't, they never, they never encounter chemicals, so they've never developed chemical resistance, and that includes hypoxia resistance. So our idea was that if we induced hypoxia, these cells would deal better with the hypoxia we induced than these cells. Now the trouble is, when we did this experiment under hypoxia and normoxia for both cell lines, we saw very little difference. And we think that's because our probes were responding so quickly that they were responding in both hypoxia and in normoxia. So again, it's this problem that we hadn't quite tuned the reduction potential correctly for this question that we were answering. So we came back to this molecule here, um, which is less easily reduced. That is, it's reduced more slowly. Um, and when we do exactly the same experiment, we saw the result that we expected. We saw a clear difference between treating the cells under hypoxia and normoxia for both cell lines. But most excitingly, when we compared the two cell lines, the hypoxia-sensitive cells responded to hypoxia more quickly than the hypoxia-resistant cells. Um, so the reason I've put this story in here is because I think it shows that we can't just take the best chemistry, we can't just take the best ratiometric probe. We have to make sure that we tune the properties of our probe to the biological question that we're answering. Um, and here in this case, because of the subtle differences between hypoxic and normoxic cells, we need something that responds slowly enough um, that we can get a really good difference. Um, at the same time, um, another PhD student of mine, Kylie, was really interested in not looking at intracellular hypoxia, but looking at extracellular hypoxia. And she was particularly interested in looking at the hypoxia that arises inside a tumour. Um, and so even though this probe had been not ideal for intracellular hypoxia, we know that um, there will be less re uh, slower reduction in extracellular environments, so we thought that it might be reduced appropriately to, to image um, extracellular hypoxia. Uh, so she put this um, group on here to keep the probe outside the cell. 
and we get exactly the same fluorescence response. We get an increase in fluorescence with reduction. Um, and now we're able to really clearly image the hypoxic region of these tumor spheroids. So here you can see these cells are far enough away from the outside of the spheroid so that they don't get enough oxygen and therefore they're hypoxic. Um, in a slightly smaller spheroid, the, the ring is smaller, but it's the same distance away from the edge of the spheroid. And in an even smaller spheroid, we don't have a hypoxic region because all of the cells get enough oxygen from the medium. Uh, so we're really continuing on um, now that we've got intracellular and extracellular hypoxia sensors to see what sort of biological questions we can probe. But if we look back at how well we've done in achieving our properties, we've really only achieved ratiometric output. These sensors are selective for hypoxia, but not selective for a specific hypoxic element. They're not targeted, although the extracellular ones are targeted to remain extracellular, and they're not reversible. This is an irreversible reaction. Um, so I'm going to move on now to tell you about the work we've been doing in sensing oxidative stress. Um, so now we're interested here. We wanted to have a probe which would tend to be oxidized and only be reduced in response to hypoxia. Here we want to have a probe that will tend to be reduced, and then we, we're looking for the oxidation response. Um, and in order to do this, we've chosen only to use biologically relevant redox switches, so things that naturally are reduced in cells and undergo some oxidation under some cellular biological processes. Um, so all the work we've done in this area have been just focusing on flavins and nicotinamides as our redox switches. Uh, so they play important roles in, in redox cofactors like FAD and NAD, um, and in vitamins like riboflavin and nicotin and niacin. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you about our flavin story because it's turned out to be a bit more successful more immediately. So flavins have a really interesting structure. Um, they can be made either from buying riboflavin commercially, which is very inexpensive because it's a natural product, or by clicking together a dianaline and a uracil derivative. Um, and we can vary any of these R groups without affecting the reversibility of reduction, but we can tune the reduction potential and tune the photophysics of the system. The only caveat is that we have to have a non-hydrogen at this position, otherwise we don't get good reversibility. Uh, so one of the really nice properties of flavins is that naturally they're fluorescent when they're oxidized and non-fluorescent when they're reduced. So already we have a nice re um, fluorescent responsive system. Uh, so when I was first starting out my group, we played around quite a lot with trying to vary the fluorescent properties of the flavin. Um, and this turned out to be one of the most successful um, molecules that we made. Again, it's based on naphthalamides, one of our favorite fluorophores. Um, and so we made this diamine version of the naphthalamide, actually very similar to, to the system I just showed you. Um, and then we can click on alloxan, which is a chlorouracil derivative, and make the final flavin. So this part of the molecule here is the flavin, and this part here is the naphthalamide, so we named it a naphthalamide flavin redox sensor, or NPFR1. So NPFR1 is highly fluorescent when it's oxidized, almost completely non-fluorescent when it's reduced. Um, flavin photophysics is not well understood, but we think that um, in the oxidized form it's planar, um, and in the reduced form we get bending across these two nitrogens, um, we get not just a loss of fluorescence, but actually a total loss of colour. Um, so we go from a yellow molecule to a colourless molecule. 
We're of course very interested in reversibility of our systems and we can cycle back and forth between oxidized and reduced forms multiple times without losing signal. So now we can put it in cells and see if it works. Here we've got um, cells that are treated with our probe. Um, the cell is naturally reducing so the probe will tend to be reduced. And when we oxidize the cells with peroxide, we can get an increase in the fluorescence of the probe. And just to show that we're not observing background flavins in the cell, if we have cells not treated with probe, we don't see anything in either resting cells or peroxide-treated cells. And we can also see the re reversibility in cells. We treat cells with probe, we can treat them with peroxide and get an increase in the fluorescence. Cells will naturally re-reduce over time, and so we get a decrease, and then we can add peroxide again and get a subsequent increase. Uh, so we've been really, um, really happy to work with a, a large number of collaborators who've been able to use NPFR1 in their own biological experiments, um, and it's now being sold by a company in Canada. Uh, but we were really keen to see how we could improve it, how we could um, change the properties to answer different biological questions. Uh, so the first thing we wanted to do was to target it to different organelles. NPFR1 is cytoplasmic. Um, and we also wanted to see whether we could make a ratiometric version. Uh, so in terms of subcellular targeting, we did the easiest one first. Um, it's quite well established that triphenylphosphonium will send cargo to the mitochondria. Uh, so we just um, incorporated a triphenylphosphonium group into our probe uh, to make NPFR2. To show that we get good, that we get good mitochondrial localization, we can do co-localization studies. So in the top here, you can see the green is our probe and the red is a commercially available lysosomal probe. And green and red don't overlap very well. That tells us that the probe is not in the lysosomes. Uh, but down the bottom, when we look at the green of our probe and the red of a mitochondrial probe, we don't really see much green and red. Instead, we see yellow. And that's the co-localization of the two probes telling us that our probe is indeed in the mitochondria. Uh, so now to show that it worked, we did some flow cytometry experiments. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar with flow cytometry, it's a really nice technique. We take, you know, say tens or hundreds of thousands of cells and pass them individually in front of a laser and measure their fluorescence output. So it's a way to get really nice statistics about a cell population in a way that we can't really do in a microscopy experiment. And so the output gives us a histogram where each um, histogram is the population of cells um, and where it's positioned on the x-axis is the fluorescence of whatever we're measuring. So here in blue are control cells treated with the probe. When we oxidize the cells, the whole population shifts to the right as we expect, they become more fluorescent. And when we reduce the cells, the whole population shifts to the left um, and in fact, it's, what's interesting in this case is that we're shifting the whole population back to pretty much the levels of cells not even treated with probe at all. So we're totally turning off the probe in the mitochondria. Uh, so this was in embryonic stem cells. And the reason we did this as our control was because we were very interested in looking at the effect of um, different mutations of the copper transport protein, CTR1, on the mitochondrial ROS, which is what our probe is able to measure. Uh, this is work we did with Stuart Fraser from the School of Medical Sciences at the University of Sydney. He was very interested in the copper transport protein CTR1 because it affects the normal differentiation of embryonic stem cells. And we were very interested in CTR1 because of its interactions with both copper and platinum. 
Um, and so what we found when we used the probe in his three cell lines is that when the cells um, expressed normal CTR1 levels, we, they had a higher mitochondrial ROS than in either the case where we had a single or a double mutant or knockout in the CTR1. So that's quite interesting because we tend to think of mitochondrial ROS as a bad thing, but actually these are the healthy cells, this red population. So we, could, we don't quite understand what's going on here, but it could be that the mitochondrial ROS burst is actually essential for normal functioning of these embryonic stem cells. And if we knock out copper uptake into the mitochondria, we're preventing that ROS production. Um, so I'm not going to tell you more about subcellular targeting, but we have developed a redox sensor targeted to the lysosomes. Um, and more recently, we've de um, developed um, redox sensors targeted to any proteins in the cell using the halo tagging system. So I'm certainly happy to answer questions about that. Um, instead, I'll tell you about our attempts to take NPFR1, which of course is a turn-on probe, and make it ratiometric. So if we think quickly about this challenge, we've got a turn-on sensor, which is relatively easy to construct because you can quench or enhance fluorescence by a number of different electronic processes. And the question is, how do we make that into a ratiometric probe? And there's really three main methods. The easiest method is to just add a control peak, a, a control fluorophore that doesn't respond to the analyte. And so we'll always have the fluorescence of that peak, whether or not this, this red fluorophore is turning on or off. The second, probably most elegant method, is to choose a fluorophore which naturally changes its fluorescence colour based on what the electronics of the sensing group are. And we sort of saw this when we were changing from the nitro to the amine and we had a shift in the colour. There aren't a huge number of fluorophores that robustly change their colour based on their electronics and this is work that we're really continuing to try and push forward because it would be very useful to have a nice set of fluorophores with these properties. Um, and the third method is to use the method that's been used for a long time in biochemistry in the fluorescent protein world which is to have energy transfer between two fluorophores. So this process is called first a resonance energy transfer. There are a few requirements. It requires that the two fluorophores are close enough together in space, and it requires that the emission spectrum of one fluorophore overlaps sufficiently with the absorption spectrum of the second fluorophore. And so that's what we used in order to make a ratiometric version of our NPFR1. So this is what our probe looks like. Here is coumarin, um, and again, one of our favourite fluorophores in our group. Um, so coumarin is non-redox responsive. It absorbs in the ultraviolet and emits in the blue. And here is a simplified synthetic flavin. Um, it absorbs in the blue and emits in the green. So we have energy transfer between the coumarin and the flavin. This is in the oxidised form, but in the reduced form, flavins are colourless. So we no longer ha can have fret because we no longer have overlap between the emission of our FRET donor and our FRET acceptor. Um, and so instead we have excitation of our coumarin and we just see the emission from the coumarin itself. And so that gives us a really clear colour change. Here is the green of our oxidised probe and the blue of our reduced probe. Um, and a very clear spectral change as well. So now when we look at um, microscopy experiments, we're no longer looking at intensity, we want to develop ratio images. So we can take the green channel and the blue channel, look at the ratio of green to blue. So here red means a higher ratio, that is more oxidizing, and blue means a lower ratio or more reducing. 
And when we oxidize the population, we see more red. When we reduce the population, we see more blue. Uh, the other really nice property of a FRET-based sensor is that we can also observe these changes in lifetime, not just in, in colour. So when FRET is actively taking place, the, life, the fluorescence lifetime of the coumarin will be quenched, um, whereas when we don't have FRET taking place, the lifetime will be the same as just free coumarin alone. Um, and the reason this is nice is that many microscopy units have a fluorescence lifetime imaging microscope, and it's really underutilized by chemists. We have so many ways to change the lifetime of fluorescence, of, of our various fluorescent molecules, but we very rarely harness it and we very rarely measure it. So we were able to perform lifetime imaging microscopy. So here, the lifetimes I've got here are the average lifetime across the whole, this whole image but we can get good statistical information, so these are actually statistically significant changes. So here, cells treated with the probe. When we reduce the cells, we're turning off FRET, so we get an increase in the lifetime. And when we reduce the so oxidize the probe, we're turning on FRET, and so we get a decrease in the lifetime. And this already is inherently ratiometric. Even if the probe wasn't ratiometric, these changes are distinct changes because they respond, we've got a lifetime of our oxidized probe and a lifetime of our reduced probe. So it's another really nice method of getting ratiometric information even out of a turn-on probe. And the reason this was important is um, because it gave us another technique to really back up what we were seeing in our confocal microscopy. So here we have some, a tumor spheroid uh, treated with our probe, the blue channel and the green channel and the ratio. And we saw this really interesting thing where this ring here has a higher, redox, a higher oxidation state, more ROS production, even though it is the hypoxic region of the spheroid, which seems a little bit counterintuitive because we would think that the hypoxic region would have less oxidation taking place. When I showed this image a few times, people said, that's just what happens when you look at a 3D spheroid on a microscope, you're going to get this artifact, which is this ring here. Now, we can answer that by saying this is a ratio image, so we're cancelling out any artifacts. But fortunately, we had another technique at our disposal, which was the lifetime image. Did exactly the same experiment, and we see exactly the same result. This ring here has a shorter lifetime, which corresponds to a more oxidising environment, um, exactly the same as what we'd seen in the confocal ratio image. And we know that lifetime has nothing to do with the optics of the microscope, so we can be confident in this result. So we're still trying to work out what exactly this means. We think that as these cells are in this hypoxic environment, they're starting to get stressed, and so they're producing ROS to maybe try to survive a little bit longer. Um, but we were really pleased to be able to see this um, and the power of a ratiometric probe in being able to show us this sort of result. And just to complete the story, we've also made a mitochondrial ratiometric version of the probe. In this case, we've used acetylated riboflavin as our FRET donor and rhodamine as our FRET acceptor. Now, because, um, so we can excite the flavin, riboflavin in the blue and we see emission from the rhodamine in the red. But in the reduced form, we can't directly excite the flavin because it's colourless. So instead, we have to directly excite the rhodamine in the green and observe the emission in the red. So this sort of probe is called an excitation ratiometric probe. We've got to excite at two wavelengths and measure one emission. It's slightly less useful. It's a bit more clunky for microscope experiments. 
But nonetheless, we get a really nice ratio change if we look at the ratio of the two emission outputs um, going from reduced to oxidized. Um, and rhodamines tend to localize in the mitochondria because they're lipophilic cations, just like the triphenylphosphonium group was. Um, and so we get very nice mitochondrial localization. And so finally, we were able to do what we really wanted to do all along, which is to actually image changes in real time because we've got these nice reversible sensors. So here we were imaging the redox burst in the mitochondria that accompanies um, bacterial infection of macrophages. We mimicked the bacterial infection by just using a, a, mol a small molecule. Um, and we can see both by flow cytometry and by microscopy that at half an hour we get the greatest mitochondrial ROS and then it subsequently decreases again. So we're seeing this burst and we're able to watch the probe turn on and then turn off again. Uh, so just to summarize this part of the talk then, we've, we've really been working towards developing a toolbox of reversible sensors for oxidative stress. Um, sensors that are based on, um, that are intensity based as well as ratiometric for the cytoplasm and the mitochondria. And as I said, we're now really working towards looking at other subcellular locations. The one thing that we haven't achieved in this probe is selectivity. So when we use any oxidizing agent, we get a turn on of our probe within 15 minutes. Now we have chosen to not have selectivity because we really wanted to achieve reversibility. And it's a real challenge having both a selective and a reversible sensor at the same time. Certainly a challenge for the future um, and it will be really exciting when that is achieved. Um, but at the moment, there are a lot of um, selective sensors on the market that are irreversible, and so we thought there was a real need for these sort of reversible, non-selective sensors. Um, but if we come back to look at our requirements, then we haven't achieved selectivity, but we have managed to make targeted probes that are reversible and ratiometric. Where selectivity becomes particularly important is when we want to look at metals within the cell. Because there are so many different metal species that have different oxidation states, different coordination environments, and if we can't selectively sense each of those different situations, we can't really understand the bioinorganic chemistry of the cell. So we've worked really hard in achieving this selectivity question when it comes to questions of both essential metal ions and exogenous metal-containing systems. So I'm going to tell you in a little bit more detail the work we've done with copper. Um, but I will briefly tell you a few of our other systems where we, we have made selective sensors. Uh, so for our exogenous metal-containing systems, we've got, um, we're working a lot on making probes for platinum drugs, um, where we've achieved not just selectivity for platinum, but selectivity for individual coordination environments around the platinum, which is very important because it allows us to be able to actually watch the metabolism of a drug like oxaliplatin within cells. We've also, um, we're interested in looking at the interaction of nanoparticles with the environment and with cells, and so developed this selective sensor for silver. We get selectivity for silver and mercury over all other metals, but we can identify silver from mercury because we get a distinct colour change. This is a reversible process and it gives us a yellow fluorescence, whereas mercury gives us a green fluorescence. And so we've been able to watch the leaching of silver, phosphate, silver out of silver phosphate glasses that are really commonly used in hospitals. Um, in terms of essential metal ions, um, we've had an interest in sensing iron. And so we developed this ratiometric sensor for iron based on calcine AM, which is very commonly used to measure iron. But we made it ratiometric. 
Um, and by having a ratiometric output, we were able to look really far into a tumor spheroid to see the iron distribution within the spheroid. Um, but I, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about copper, which again is a, is a really long-term interest in, of the research in our group. So we've been interested in understanding copper in biology for two main reasons. Firstly, because um, we're interested in cisplatin, as I said, and there's a lot of talk about the interaction between cisplatin and copper homeostasis in the cell, so we wanted to directly probe the copper homeostasis. Um, and secondly, um, working with Tony White, who's now, at, um, um, who's now working up here at QIMR, QIMR he um, was very interested in measuring copper in neurodegenerative disease and so asked us for a probe. So we were really interested in working with these cyanine um, scaffolds. So we thought that cyanine, this is a hemicyanine, we thought that they would be inherently ratiometric. Um, we thought that if we perturbed the electron uh, density on this nitrogen here, we should be able to shift the fluorescence peak of the cyanine. Um, but in fact, that's not what happened. So we built into this a copper receptor containing these thioether-rich groups. Copper one is a soft metal. It's the only soft essential metal. Um, so actually, it's quite easy to selectively sense because we just need to build a soft receptor and it will therefore be selective over all other metals in the cell which tend to be hard or borderline hard soft. Um, but what we found is that when the copper was interacting with this group, it interacts primarily with the sulfurs, but slightly also with the lone electron pair on the nitrogen. We didn't get a change in colour, we just got a turn off in fluorescence. So this is a turn off probe, which is even less useful than a turn on intensity based probe. Um, so coming back to our strategies for ratiometric sensing, we took the easiest way out and just added a control peak. So here we've added a coumarin as our control peak. This coumarin is nowhere near the copper receptor, so its fluorescence is not affected by the presence of copper. Um, so when we look at the spectra, here is the peak from the coumarin. It never changes. And this peak here from the hemicyanine decreases in response to copper addition. So now we can take the ratio of uh, blue to red, and that ratio increases with copper addition. We get very good selectivity for copper over all other metals. So here in black, you can see this is copper one with our probe and only copper one causes an increase in the ratio. No other metals do. And these gray bars here show us what happens if we take the solution containing metal plus probe and add back copper one. And in every case, we get restoration of the ratio that we expect. So that tells us that not only is our probe selective for copper one, it's not affected by the presence of any other metal. We also wanted to assess the reversibility. We can see a good increase of the ratio with copper one, and we can decrease that ratio again if we chelate away the copper with thiourea. So when we put the probe in cells, we saw very good mitochondrial localization of the probe. Um, we believe that's because um, the probe, the hemicyanin is a lipophilic cation, and lipophilic cations like to localize to the mitochondria. Um, we can take the spectral image from within cells. So here is our coumarin peak. It doesn't respond to copper. Here's our hemicyanine peak. It decreases with the addition of copper. Again, we can take the ratio of these two peaks from within cells and see that when we treat cells with copper, we get an increase in the ratio. Uh, so we particularly use this probe to look at platinum, interactions of platinum with mitochondrial copper. Um, but I'm just going to show you one result, which is interesting and we don't understand yet. Um, this is work we did with Gavin McCall at the Florey Institute in Melbourne. Um, so here are C. elegans or nematode worms that have been 
kept healthy and happy at 25 degrees or heat shocked at 35 degrees. Um, we're not looking at the ratio image here. Instead, here's the blue channel and here's the red channel and here's the merged image. So pink tells us that we've got sort of comparable levels of blue and red. So in the, at 25 degrees, we see blue and red in the same regions of the worm. The worm is pink throughout. But at 35 degrees, the, the head is red. That means there's less copper and the rest of the worm is blue. So we don't understand this at all, but it does suggest that under heat shock, we get release of copper from the mitochondria in the brain, which could be a way that the C. elegans have of maintaining the copper levels that are necessary for function, brain function by releasing it from stores in the, in the mitochondria. So we're continuing this on and seeing whether we can see this in any other organisms, whether we can see it in cultured cells. Um, but I think it nicely shows the value of a ratiometric probe. We really couldn't see these subtle changes if we had a probe that just turned on or off. Um, but because we've got these two peaks that we can monitor, um, we can be quite confident in the result that we see. Uh, so just to summarise this probe then, we have managed to achieve all four of our aims. We have a selective sensor that is ratiometric, targeted to the mitochondria, and reversibly senses copper. Um, and so we're really keen to see what we can do with it and what sort of biological questions we can study. Um, so I've just told you today a little bit of a snapshot of the, the sorts of approaches we take in our work um, to individually study cellular redox state and essential metal ions. Um, as I said before, we're also really interested in understanding the interactions and the interplay between all of these complex chemistries that occur in the cell. Uh, so I've tried to thank students on slides as I've gone along, uh, but these are the current group members and the former group members who've worked on the projects uh, that I've particularly talked about today. Um, this is the group a few weeks ago um, when the weather was much nicer in Sydney than it is now. Um, and I'm really grateful to all of the collaborators who, who I've worked with over the last um, seven or so years, these ones particularly um, uh, whose work I talked about today. Um, and of course, I'm very grateful to funding. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.